Hey guys, Jack here. Thank you so much for tuning in. As always, we are brought to you by Solve for Why. Um, today's guest, actually, Travis Moss, uh, is someone who I met through the Solve for Why Academy, or the most recent academy that I was able to attend. Um, Travis is a great player who's based in the Maryland area. He plays mostly at Maryland Live. He recently had a great interview with another former podcast and friend of mine, uh, Robbie Straczynski from Card Player Lifestyle, um, who is now the host of the Red Chip podcast. So I'm going to link to that interview in the show notes. Um, it's well worth checking out. And if you want to be a participant at the next Software Y Academy, there's a couple coming up in March. Um, the second week of March, uh, a Cash Academy and a Tournament Academy. I think the Tournament Academy is actually first. But you can get information on all of that at SolveForYAcademy.com. Uh, there's a link to that in the show notes. And if you decide to head over to the Academy, definitely let me know and also use Just Hands 2019 as your coupon code at checkout for that or anything else you decide to buy from Solve for Y. Uh, so hope to see some of you guys there. And again, thank you all for tuning in and enjoy this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Just Hands. Uh, I'm joined here by a fantastic player who I met at the most recent Solve for Y Academy that I was able to attend. This is um, recent Red Poker Chip podcast guest Travis Moss here to talk about uh, some poker strategy. Travis, how are you doing? Good. Hi, everyone. Hi, Jack. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. So, Travis, uh, you are based in the Maryland live area. Is that the uh, setting for the hands you wanted to discuss? Uh, yeah, this is one that actually happened this week, and I certainly want to get your take on it because it's it seems to be an ongoing theme with hands I've been in lately. Okay, that sounds perfect. Uh, so set us up. 2-5, five, 500 effective, 6-handed. The table's playing kind of weird in that nobody wants to open. But if somebody does open, everybody calls. Real quick, I hate those kinds of games. <laughs> for what it's <laughs> yeah, like. Yeah, they're, they're, they're a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah, since often like in games where there's a lot of preflop action, you can adopt a super profitable like limp re-raise strategy from early position if you can limp and expect someone to open. But if it's the kind of thing where you limp and everyone's behind or you open and everyone calls behind, it's not that it's like a bad situation. It's just a boring situation since you just have to end up making hands um, and exactly. just getting paid. And that's profitable, but not super interesting. Yeah. And the weird thing too was like, it wasn't like everybody would limp, you know? So, and this hand exemplifies that. So like in this hand in particular, the under the gun one who very loose reg, my guess is not a winning player. He limped. Comes around to the button to another, you know, reg. He's blue, you know, another blue collar guy worker. Comes in and plays after work, um, and he's a regular, but he's he's good, but definitely too loose and overvalues hands. And so he limps also, and I'm in the big blind. I have ace of hearts, jack of clubs, so I make it thirty five. Mm. Uh, under the gun folds, the button calls. And I'm like, okay, you know, his range is going to be really wide here. So, you know, I should be able to bet most flops. Sure. And yeah. what are stacks? Just 500 effective. Okay, great. We, it, was, it was a must-move table that it pretty much just opened. Um, we were both sitting on about 500. All right, sounds good. 
So the flop comes king of clubs, ten of clubs, four of hearts. And I have the jack of clubs. So I go ahead and I just lead out 55, you know, into a pot of 75. Seemed like, you know, it's a little bit, it's just kind of a standard C-bet. And I thought he would fold most everything, you know, on that flop. Yeah, well, I mean, by most everything, like, I think we get a lot of, like, low equity hands to fold here. And that's fine. I think part of what's, so in an environment where, like, you're playing against players who are more respectful of like small flop bets in the sense that they don't see that as capping your range. I would consider a smaller bet, but I actually think that in practice, this larger bet size tends to set up a really profitable double barrel where we get a lot of like 10 X to fold and we can potentially turn this into like a triple barrel spot. If we get a club on the turn or a club on the river, without improving our hand in some other way. And so I think setting up with the expect the expectation that we can barrel, one, having more money in the pot to win through barreling is nice. And two, I think that when we start out with like a bet of like $30 or $35 here per se, we just don't get credit for top of range, which is difficult when we're trying to get folds. Yeah, it's also difficult to get it all in. You know, I'm kind of some, a oh, lot of times sure. going trying to get it all in by the river, even if I'm running a triple barrel, I want it to be, you know, that river bets all in, you know, if I'm still, when I'm playing at a 500 cap, you know, or 100 big blind, it's like, I want it all in by the river or, you know, I'm giving up one of the two. Sure. Although I think like, this is a spot where on these sort of two Broadway boards, I find that like on a lot of like Ricky turns, we can get in a check raise. I think opponent bet frequency is too high, like from this profile, on most turns. Like, players will just bet a 10, or like a not-so-great king, too often. And so I think that, like, if we start out with a small bet, and leverage through, like, a turn check raise, that is a, also a reasonable approach. But I think stacks are such that I prefer your line of just going bet-bet and potentially bet again as a way to leverage stacks. Still leveraging on the turn, most likely, mm-hmm. and then setting up an all-in bet on the river. Well, it certainly helps when the turn is the queen of spades and you bank the Broadway straight. Yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's 185 in the pot. I bank the straight, and I go ahead and just lead big. I'm figuring at this point that makes a lot of his, you know, a lot of the hands he called me with on the flop aren't folding to this queen, and it improves some of his hands. So I bet 125 into the 185. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's anything wrong with this. I think in there would be other situations where like the river might kill your action at a certain frequency, in which case you might want to try and get stacks in on the turn through a check race, understanding that like most of the hands you're gonna be able to stack will bet now. When we have the jack of clubs, there's just really no river we can't shove on. And so I prefer just going bet-bet with this combo. Mm -hmm. And it gets better because now the villain min raises me to 250. So here's where the question comes in. I chose to go ahead and go all in, which was another, you know, for 285. So it would have been 165 for him to call or so. 
And he tanks for a little bit, and then he open-folded Queen of Hearts, Ten of Spades, two pair. Yeah. So I think you should go all in here. Like, we could... There's definitely a chance that, like, we could have just called, got some sort of blank river, led, shoved, or checked and induced, and gotten stacks in successfully. But the difference, actually, in our outcome between getting him to fold for this additional 165 and, like, having one of those those things happen was relatively low, considering we did deny some equity. Like... Getting him to fold four outs, it's like not a lot, but if he had called, those four outs would be good for like $100 of this pot or around there, like $80. So getting him to fold without, we're missing out on like $80 here. And so we could, if we decide to check the river, we could be reverse free rolling ourselves, which isn't great. And if we lead the river, um, we're probably leading on like a ten or a queen, or if we're not to just like pot control, we we might miss out on value from worse. So, yeah, I, I can't really think of a very good reason to not shove here. And I think that you getting someone to fold two pair, even though I think that's like a reasonable, like when he gets to that point in the hand, like folding to bottom two. It's not so unreasonable. What was already unreasonable was raising. Like, I just don't think that hand, I think it's clearly not strong enough to raise. Like, we can raise it, but I just think we have better options against hands like Ace King. Yeah, and it was just a weird, you know, and I think because this became this recurring theme later in that night and a couple other times, and where the way the stacks were, it was so, so awkward on the turn that I had to jam the turn whether it was, you know, through a check raise or, you know, or just outright jam. And these guys were laying down just two pair plus. And I'm going, how on earth did you fold, you know, two pair there for a hundred bucks in a thousand dollar pot, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, on the other hand, like you might've got to this spot with something like ace of clubs, something. And just said, you know, like, F it, like, let me make sure that I at least get paid if I hit. I'm not saying that's a good play. You know, I think give, given this price, we should probably just be flatting with, like, you know, ace, four of clubs, per se. But if we do shove with that hand and get him to full two pair, it's such a disaster for him. It's just very strange. And for him to have chosen a non-all-in sizing is also very strange and pretty transparent transparent such that like I would think that you'd be foolish not to shove just because he's so likely to call after making that sizing and so then the fact that he was well within the range that is that sort of is sort of emblematic of that very unlikely to be a bluff min raise on the turn line the presence of that hand having taken this line would make me think that shoving is clearly right and the fact that he happened to fold face up is surprising. And, you know, if he had a hand like King Queen, I'm not sure he would have folded face up. And so yeah. we might risk not getting value. Like, yeah, and I think King Queen's probably the hand he was most afraid I have. Like, I don't think he even 
considered ace jack there. <laughs> he probably didn't, which is, it shows how silly this min raise with queen tendons. And I think like some people listening to this might be saying to themselves, why not raise with queen 10? Like we're targeting ace king. We're targeting aces, king jack. The thing is, or ace queen maybe, the problem with that thinking is that a lot of those hands don't bet the turn at full frequency. Um, I'm not saying it's impossible for Travis to have bet ace-king or aces here, but I think he checks at least some of the time, and some players check there a lot. But also, when you have queen-ten, there's just so many things that beat you. Um, you still lose to tens, queens, kings, king-queen, and ace-jack. And a lot of the hands that just call you like have good equity. It's not like you're absolutely crushing ace-king or aces here. Those hands still have something like 20 to 25% of the pot. And so when you're, you know, when you only have 75% against your value targets and you are basically dead or close to dead against like large portions of your opponent's range, it's not a good spot to be putting additional money in the pot. Even if you got one of the best turns that you could get for your exact hand. Yeah, it makes sense. So I like your line, you know. Well, and, and I think some of this plays into because there's, you know, casino, I think casino image comes into play sometimes. You know, when you have a reputation in wherever you play locally, especially amongst certain regs, you're going to get folds at times nobody else would. And I think this, and this came up later in, against the same two guys, as a matter of fact, <laughs> with a similar hand, only this time I was bluffing. Okay, let's hear it. So again, this time we're a little, stacks are a little deeper. I think everybody's chipped up. Uh, probably like 700 effective. I'm in the big blind again. New player on my right. He's another one of the top tier two five guys. Has a pretty a very good reputation and somebody I'm very glad was on my immediate right. Okay. I'll put it that way. Uh, and the action is almost identical. Same player under the gun. One limps, button limps, and the small blind who's this rag on my right, he makes it 35. I have queen jack offsuit. I can't remember the suits. No heart. That'll matter. In the big line. So I just flat. And I really wasn't sure whether the two, you know, the two limps would call or fold. Uh, they ended up both calling. Mm-hmm. I think there's definitely a case for three betting. How deep are you with small blind? Uh, he's got everybody covered. Mm-hmm. And I have, I don't even have, I have like about 130 big lines. Okay, so that makes it, I think, a relatively tricky spot. When we're deeper, I would definitely consider a three bet since it reduces the chance that you would just get shut out of the pot through four bets. But the reason I would consider three betting this hand is that I think we do well against the sort of isolating type of range from small blind. But we can get a lot of dominating equity to fold through a three bet. Like a lot of king queen offs, king jack offs, ace jack off, maybe even like, you know, people take three bets pretty seriously. That's one of the major, I would say, leaks uh, of people playing this, these games. And it's conditioned by a field that three bets just a very strong range all the time. And so we can take advantage of that by isolating the player who is the one player who is out of position and often getting dominating equity to fold. And then you know, we'll be sort of at bottom of range 
going to flop and we'll have to play accordingly. Like we can't necessarily bet every time we flop top pair. Um, we'll have to, you know, think more critically about board texture at that point. But I think there's definitely a case in terms of just clearing up our equity and reducing the field from likely three or four to one person who's out of position. So it's something to consider. But I think when you're, if you're a hundred bigs deep, then I think it becomes more like between call and fold and at 130 bigs deep. It's, it's very close between all three options in my mind. Yeah. Deeper stacked. Um, I'm three betting it for sure. But in the big blind either, you know, it's, it's, I think sometimes it's just, it's mixed what my response will be. Sometimes I'm going to flat there sometimes because I wasn't afraid of four bet from any of the, from the other two players. Yeah. So there's a lot to be said for just take the flop and go from there. Cause you know, the, the player I'm worried about is on my right. He's going to act first. You know, the other two are going to play their hands pretty much face up. Mm. Yeah. I think so. the, the weaker your opponent's limp calls or especially, I guess just the weaker those limping ranges are to start out, the better like the call. Like, I think there are some games where people actually limp reasonably strong ranges such that you might be even just better off folding this hand. Like, it's not a great price. It's 7x. And it's coming from the better player at the table. And so it's not exactly the kind of person that you want to be targeting via flats in spots where it's like think of a multi-way and you're going to be in fairly poor relative position. So I, I think there's a case for folding. But given my sense that, like, these are very loose limpers who have a lot of folds and also will call with hands that we dominate, even in the offset variety. I like the call. Okay. So pot's now about 140 and the flop comes king of hearts, 10 of hearts, four of spades. So I have up and down straight draw with no heart. Mm -hmm. And the original razor, he goes ahead and leads out for, it was like 85. It was a weird number. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a half a pot, but it wasn't three quarter pot either. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, I'm going to call and pretty much bet almost any turn, you know, any heart I'm betting for sure, you know, and if he checks, I'm bombing the pot. So um, are you going to raise on a heart? If he leads out on a heart, there was a good chance I would just against this particular player. And I was expecting the other two players in the hand to fold to this, you know, to the 85 bet with a call. That didn't happen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I personally would raise here. I think generally just taking aggressive lines is in multi-base spots is going to yield good results. The problem, I see, I see a couple of problems with calling players coming in behind really hurts our ability to do anything other than just realize our equity on later streets because those players have coverage on hearts. And so like when someone just calls behind, like we can't necessarily just bomb a heart, especially since it's not like a small line check would be uncapped from a good player. Uh, also them calling behind makes it harder for us to rep much on later streets since a lot of their calls are going to be like blocking Kings, blocking tens and weakening our range. Plus, I just think that when we have a hand like King 10 plus here, we're often going to be just raising now to try and deny equity to get hands behind like Queen Jack to fold. Queen Jack being a hand that really can't just call a raise here. It just has to fold basically on a two-tone board. So I, I like raising right away, especially if we think that small blind is 
c-bedding too wide. And if we are going to just flat, I think that's fine, but I think we just have to be a little bit more careful about our plan on future streets and look for more advantageous spots to potentially put in an aggressive action. Yeah, I definitely like, I think raising probably would have been the better play. Now, you know, now we're talking about it, especially against, you know, the uh, small blinds range there. As it is, the uh, undergun player calls, and the other player tanks for a while, looks back at his cards a couple of times, um, <laughs> and then finally folds. Um, so at this point, I'm I'm pretty sure he was on a draw, and um, another gun won. If he had anything but a draw, I think he's raising. You know, maybe he has one pair there. I don't think they could. If he has king ten, if he has a set, I think even if he has enough yeah, flush yeah. draw, he's just raising there. You don't think? To me, it seems very possible that like both under the gun and the late position player had a king. Like I could see hands like king jack, king nine, just deciding to fold here. I think it's a really good fold. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that I see that many people make. But yeah, so I, I actually think that, to me, what this says is that the small blinds range has become relatively weaker with the reduction of probably on average at least like one king. You know, it doesn't mean he couldn't still have strong hands, but it makes him having a hand like pocket kings much less likely, which is good for us. All right, so what uh So what the, the turns, the seven of clubs, which is a total brick, there's about 395, 400 in the pot, and I've got right around pot left. I think I have a little more than pot. So the small line checks. And so now I'm in this weird spot where I don't want to check, but I don't have a good bet size. So I go all in. Yeah, it's, uh, I like that. So recap, the flop bet was 55, you said? The, the pre-flop was 35 a pop, mm. so that was, there's four players, so that's 140. And then he bet like 85 with okay. three callers, or two callers, so. All right, so we have like 400 yeah. in the middle, and the stacks are, let's say we all start started, with 130. Yeah. Yeah, we all started with like 600. Yeah, the, the small blind had a couple thousand, but, you know, me yeah. and the under the gun player both had, you know, like 650-ish. To start. So, so we're at like 1.2 SPR. Right. I like shove a lot because we have this small blind who... In some ways, like he's, it's not that he's capped, but he kind of has the weakest range in a way because we have the card removal of two players behind, weakening his range. He had an advantage on this flop. He might think that he can just sort of bully you guys and be C-betting too much for a four-way pot. You know, I, that's not the kind of thing that I would think would be very uncommon for like a 2-5 pro, even a good 2-5 pro over betting in that kind of spot. So I think that there's a good chance that that player has a lot of hands like ace-queen, ace-jack, ace of hearts, x, like a 10, like a weak king. When he has a king, like you're, you're in a bit of trouble because like, I don't think he folds it that often. But I think you can get the player in position to fold a lot of kings. Like It's just a really tough spot for him to call with a player left to act behind. And I think you can get this player to fold most of his 
ace queen ace jack even if those make for reasonable calls when they unblock hearts but yeah i just think that like i don't it's not that this makes so much sense like in theory but i just think this is going to be effective based on multi-way dynamics yeah and part of my thinking like all those hands you just named you know the ace queens the ace jacks the kings king axes i block all the good ones with because i have queen jack so I'm blocking the king-queen, the queen, you know, the king-jack, the ace-queen, the ace-jack. So those combos are way, you know, there's a lot less of them. Yeah. I also don't think it's that like. One thing that's working in your favor is that you and Under the Gun won, and this is going to sound wrong, but I actually do think it's working in your favor. Like, you guys are kind of capped. And so it just doesn't make that much sense for small blind to check top of range here with close to one-to-one SPR. He shouldn't expect you guys to want to bet that often. And so I think that this check from small blind is just really quite weak. And I think we block a lot of... You're right, like, what are the hands that he might check call here? I think hands like king-queen and king-jack fit that bill. And so I think that we, we actually do well to block those. We're also giving hearts a bad price, which is very nice. Were the king and ten the flop hearts? Yes. That that that's great. So if like if the ten or the king is not a heart, that makes this play much worse. Since I think that most king x of hearts combos and ten x of hearts combos are extremely likely to call here, and there's just a lot fewer like four x of hearts. We also have like reasonable equity against four x of hearts. You know what do we have like ten outs? So you know that's something. So yeah, I like this. I, I like everything about it. Uh, I think this is very perceptive. This good instincts. Because I don't think, like, it's just hard to think about all this stuff in the moment. Um, yeah, and once the small blind checked, I pretty much was like, you know, took it, he gave up. And, yeah, you know, I kind of... So I was like, okay, now I just have to get the under-the-gun player to fold. And I pretty much figured he's not going to call, you know. Because I played it like I would, like, I would play a lot of hands that wanted to make sure the turn wasn't a heart. And when it wasn't a heart, I bombed. And so he folded and small blind folded and, you know, took it down. Nice. That's a good pot. I, I never, yeah, I thought it was interesting, you know, both these hands came up when I was in the big blind. You know, it's like, you know, it's just one of those tougher positions to find creative lines to win with, you know, especially on a, you know, on a board that should be, you know, disadvantaged to you. Yeah, it's, it's a really weird, it's kind of a weird spot because, like, if, you take the strategy that you are likely taking, then you actually do give small blind a lot of incentive to check. Since like, if you're going to be just shoving your like King Queens, King Jacks, shoving your Queen Jacks, shoving a lot of heart draws, then he has very little incentive to bet. And he can just let you bet for him when he has anything good. But I don't think the field does that. And so it's just a really, it's a really good spot because we're, we're acting counter to like how the field tends to behave. And because the field tends to be fairly, the field tends to fast play a lot on early streets and be fairly conservative in three-way pots and not just look to bluff with hands like Queen Jack, then this check starts to look a lot weaker than it would if it was someone who knew that you were going to be betting this often. So we're, we're basically leveling up on the pro, which is always nice. Yeah. And I think it helps, you know, that, again, it goes back to knowing what your image is 
I think it's just about as important as knowing what the other players are. You know, and I, I do have this value-heavy image. So, you know, people talk about it. It's like, if I'm putting my chips in or the big bet, I've got it. And people talk about it all the time and they, without ever seeing the actual hands. So I leverage that image as much as possible. You know, when I hit situations like that hand there where I had everything in the world blocked. And the only thing I'm really worried about is a heart draw calling. And even if they do, I'm probably good. So it's like, you know, being able to, you know, exploit your own image, I think is, has a lot of value to it. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of cases, it's better to have a value heavy image since being able to, that there's really mainly two ways to win money in poker, as we know. Like one is getting people to put money in when you have the worst, when they have the worst of it and getting them to fold when they have the best of it or when they have some of it. And when we're a value-heavy profile, like there's a lot more opportunities to get people to fold than there are to just get people to like have a worse hand than you and put money in the middle. And so the, yeah. I think part of the curse of being identified as bluff-heavy is that you become resigned to play a relatively tight value-heavy strategy, especially when stacks aren't very deep. Like When stacks are deep, then all bets kind of come off because your ability to just reach people's pain thresholds now becomes much more at play. In 100 Big Blind Poker, if you're seen as being very bluff-heavy, you are sort of resigned to become value-heavy, and you are compensated well, but it's... I guess I just reflect poorly on it because I don't like having to be value-heavy, which is <laughs> why I am pigeonholed into that strategy fairly often. Yeah, and I think that even with you know, even with your image, you know, it's finding those exploits, like you said. It's like when you do have it, you're going to get paid, and you know, some maximizing on those situations. And like I have to do that with certain players. There are certain players who do not see me as a value heavy profile. Yeah, and it's usually amongst the top tier guys, like because amongst them, I'm loose, and. So they, you know, they'll sit there and even recollect hands that were played seven months ago. You know, when I make the big bet, and they'll be like, "What do you got? Three five suited here?" You know, or some crazy hand that I'm not supposed to have. Mm-hmm. So I have to, you know, you have to gear it to who's your audience. Yeah, for sure. And I think that the sort of realities of being pigeonholed one way or, or the other, the way you go about building that kind of image. Um, is really important. And some people are just going to be profiled one way or the other based on factors outside of how they actually play. And I think that oftentimes in a casino, it doesn't really get much deeper than that. But if you're looking to sort of build that bluff-heavy strategy, or sorry, that bluff-heavy image, um, and then capitalize through value, I think it's important to consider, like, what are the more profitable ways to table bluffs? And so that kind of consideration becomes really important in terms of like, it's a lot more profitable to table a strong draw on the turn where you tried to leverage with an all in bet and failed. And now we're collecting your equity. than it is to try and leverage on the, on the river with no equity. Like both of those table bluffs will have a similar effect on how people view you going forward, where one yields a certain amount of profit after it fails and the other doesn't. Uh, so it's something to consider when you're playing a casino and you're trying to sort of craft your image one way or the other. 
is one of the more profitable ways to craft that image. I don't think many people go in looking to craft a super value-heavy image. I think it just gets thrust upon them, or it's well-deserved. I mean, for most people, it's well-deserved. For you, it just gets thrust upon you, and so you don't have to work at it one way or the other, which is, you know, why my personal feeling is that in most games, like, the largest potential win rates are all among people who are not in their 20s or 30s. I think that describes you, Travis. <laughs> Definitely not my 20s or 30s yeah, anymore. I don't want to make any assumptions, but... Yeah. The other thing, too, is, you know, particularly at Maryland Live, because, I mean, I've only been playing just over five years now, you know, with any kind of seriousness. And all of it's been at Live. You know, my first time ever playing at a casino was at Live. And so the players and the dealers and stuff have watched me grind up from, you know, one, two and four, eight limit to start taking shots at two, five and have to drop back down and, you know, then finally get to move up to two, five and stay there and start taking shots at five, 10 and then throw my hat in the ring at the five car PLO. And that really makes, you know, I think a big difference when the, you know, the general population, knows you started out down there with the one, two people. And now you're up here hanging with the big boys. It sends a message you know, that I don't get to play that image anywhere, but at Maryland live, because that's where the history is. Yeah. That's really interesting. I know we're not going to have that much time to get into it here since, well, you guys don't know this who are listening, but I wasted about 25 minutes of Travis's life dealing with computer issues and mic issues. But Travis, you just did, an interview, which I think we mentioned earlier on Redship, talking about a lot of like you're coming up, what you've done to be successful, like things that you've encountered, which have gotten in your way. Do you want to, I'm going to link to that in the show notes. So Good. do you want to maybe preview that for these guys? I know you just did a little bit, but just talking about what they can expect from that interview. Mostly it does, it does in a nutshell, tell that story of how I got, you know, Cause I've never, you know, the book says, you know, play with a bankroll or play with this. And I was never one of those people, you know, it talks about the days of walking into the casino with a hundred dollars, having to make rent and just, you know, what that grind was like and what I did to go from being, you know, to recognizing the environment that, you know, I had a lot to learn and I needed to learn it quickly to catch up to the field and how I went about it. And then just how I worked my, you know, pay my dues in a short period of time to be able to work my way up those ranks and stay there. Yeah. That's uh, I mean, it's an uncommon story because I think most people don't um, make it. They lose what they're going to lose and quit, or they just come in where they come in. Maybe they move up one stake just sort of because they got sick of it or maybe they're making more money outside in their, of their poker life, or they just get numb to gambling for smaller amounts of money. So you know, they, they need to move up to sort of maintain. But yeah, that a more successful story, especially, you know, not just someone who, you know, started out online in like 2005 or whatever, made a bunch of money, learned some stuff down the road, and now is just like a reasonably happy grinder. Those, those stories are rare. So I recommend, obviously, I think a lot of you guys who are listening to this can resonate with a lot of Travis's story, his experience, and would do well to emulate some of the things that he's done to get where he is, including, and I'll just hope, plug this with your permission, attend the software academy. You know, I think 
Yeah, I know that's not how you got to this point necessarily, but I'm sure I feel confident that's going to help you get to the next level. I hope you feel the same way. Oh, absolutely. And it was a natural, actually, in the Red Chip interview, I talk about, you know, kind of the evolution of working my way up, you know, to solve for why. And, you know, being at that level now, it's like opens up this whole new world of, you know, new questions and new answers and going deeper down the rabbit hole. The rabbit hole. Gotta love the rabbit hole. Travis, really, really appreciate your time. And I hope everyone checks out that interview. And you're obviously welcome back on the show whenever you like, if you have new interesting hands that come up or really anything else. And hopefully I'll catch you soon in Maryland, Vegas, or perhaps Florida. Those are three places I attend with relative frequency, although I haven't been to any of them uh, in a a few months at least. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I look forward to it. I enjoyed playing with you in Vegas, and hopefully we'll get to play together again soon. Yeah, I forgot we played. Yeah, that was a fun session.